Thank you for the prayer, Leonard, and your reading of scripture, as well as the uh, song service this morning. I was blessed, and my heart and mind were simply drawn heavenward as I think of as beautiful as this sounded this morning. I can't imagine what it's going to sound like in glory. I can't wait. I can't wait. <clears throat> but not only the singing, but the praises of our God, our Savior. Seeing Jesus face to face, looking into his eyes. So much to be thankful for. And then as Leonard read the scripture in Job, I had to think um, today all the people that do not believe, the atheists and the agnostics and people that say there is no God, can they answer those questions? And they try, right, by natural ways, and they have a lot of answers, but there are some in there, unfortunately, they don't know, and they are, still don't believe. Turn with me to Mark chapter 8. <clears throat> in, the, in a book by Ray Steadman, The Servant Who Rules, <clears throat> he gives an account of an illustration of a jazz pianist Name was by the name of George Shearing, who had been blind from birth. <clears throat> he was a composer of more than 300 pieces, and he toured, uh, toured uh, continually throughout his life, uh, toured many places and, and performed. But he was blind, and he could often be found in busy uh, downtown areas of cities and trying to navigate the crowded sidewalks. He had dark glasses and a white cane, and navigating through, and he would usually wait till uh, someone could assist him across the busy streets and, and so on and so forth. And one day he was at a busy intersection during rush hour, and he was waiting for someone to help, and, and up comes someone beside him and taps him on the shoulder, and he said, excuse me, sir, he said to Shearing, would you mind helping a blind man across the street? And uh, Shearing, you know, first thought, well, duh. I'm blind too, and he thought, I'm just going to tell him. But then he thought, oh, you know what? Why not try? So he said, well, certainly, my friend, take my arm and let's go. And across the road they went, the blind leading the blind. They heard many unnerving sounds, brakes screeching, horns tooting, angry voices of cab drivers hollering at them. But they made it safely. Later, Shearing said this. He said, I'll never do it again but I'm glad it did it once. It was the biggest thrill of my life. <clears throat> the blind leading the blind. Our text here today in Mark chapter 8 gives us a case, an incident of another blind man. And uh, maybe just a little bit of a context. I'm going to start reading in verse 22, but the context of the rest of the, of the beginning of the book of Mark was when Jesus had fed the 4,000 people and with the seven loaves of bread and a few small fishes, it says. And this was a different incidence than the five feeding of the 5,000. <clears> and then from there, the Pharisees asking him for a sign, and he said, there will be no sign given unto this generation. <coughs> and then the disciples asking Jesus, you know, talking about the leaven of the Pharisees, and Jesus kind of giving them some questions in verse 20 or 19, 17, 18, and 19. And then starting verse 22, let's read. <clears throat> he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him, and besought him to touch him. 
And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. I like that incident because one of the things I, I think that happened here, if we go back to earlier in Bethsaida, Jesus had cursed it because they were unbelieving. And so he had left it and cursed it. And it almost feels like he was not going to perform a miracle in this town. So he led him by the hand for, and then led him out of the town. And, uh, and when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught, if he saw, or what did you see? And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. So after that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored, and he saw every man clearly. And he sent him away into his house, and saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell it to any in the town. And Jesus went out and his disciples into the towns of Caesarea Philippi, which was approximately 25 miles. And by the way, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist, some say Elias, another say one of the prophets, and he saith unto them, But whom say ye that I am? Then Peter answered and said unto him, Thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes and be killed and after three, de three days rise again. And he spake that saying openly. And Peter took him and began to rebuke him and but when he had turned about and looked on his disciples, he rebuked Peter, saying, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. I'll stop reading there. <clears throat> I don't know what you think of, how many times you've read this account of the blind man and what you've thought of it. Have you ever given it any thought? I hadn't until recently. I was preaching through the book of Mark, and I came across this account, and I've read it many times, but it kind of hits you all of a sudden. This is a strange story. This is a strange miracle. And what is Jesus trying to do here, uh, teaching his disciples here? Or what's he trying to teach us? And, uh, and I'm not professing that I know the extent of it. I, I, I absolutely, I, I know I don't know. But just some things that I kind of gleaned from this. It's kind of normal enough how it starts about the stranger being blind, because we know Jesus is able to heal the blind and or make the blind to see, heal the lame, make the lame to walk again. He's able to do the, the deaf could hear again. But this is a little bit different. Jesus touched him or put his hand upon him and spit on his eyes and basically asked him, what do you see? Well, that's odd. Has Jesus ever performed a miracle and, 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 and the man wasn't completely healed? Just partially healed? Has Jesus lost his power? What's going on? Doesn't he know if his miracle, if his power worked or not? I mean, remember the, the, the lady that touched the hem of his garment, he felt the power go from him, and he knew right away what happened. It was something like, well, Jesus, what's going on here? As if to say, did, did my miracle work? Did, 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 can you see? I don't think that was the case, but... And then the next thing, verse 24, the man says, well... He says, I see men as trees walking. Wow, he had blurry vision, didn't he? Either he'd lived in a different country than I do, or there were huge men with big limbs. But he just, he just, he just, 
these trees seemed, it looked strange to him. He was still very much not seeing clearly. And we see here that he had been healed, kind of, right? Sort of. He had been partially healed. So then verse 25, Jesus goes at it again. And after that, he put his hands again upon his eyes, and he made him look up. And then he was restored, and he saw every man clearly. Finally, it worked, right? Finally, hey, I didn't lose my power. Think that's what's happening with Jesus? No, I don't think so. We know Jesus better than that. And we could have different options. One is maybe this man just had so much spit in his eyes he just couldn't see clearly. I don't know. I don't think that was the case. Maybe this was an extra tough kind of blindness that Jesus had never encountered before. Well, we know that's not the case. Well, I read recently there was an article in, in the Christian Journal that talked about a disease of an eye condition called agnosia, if I pronounced that correctly. It allows a person to see, but their brain can't quite comprehend and communicate what they're seeing, and so it's kind of blurry. They, they just kind of, maybe Jesus knew of this already 2,000 years ago, this condition that's just been recently discovered, and it's possible. I don't think that's logical, though. Or do you think the story was put in here by Mark for a purpose, a specific purpose? And why was it put in the middle of a chapter of a book of Mark, pretty much in the, book of, in the middle of the book of Mark, in the middle of a chapter where the disciples were questioning Jesus about, well, a lot of things, and Jesus had to rebuke him a couple of times. And then to end the chapter, I didn't finish the reading of the chapter, but after Jesus declared that you are the Christ, the end of the chapter, then Jesus goes into this discipleship command. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. And he goes on. Could it be there's a purpose in all this? I have yet to see scripture just randomly put, uh, the Bible writers just randomly put counts into uh, sections of their chapter. Of course, I know the Bible wasn't written in chapters originally, but I've yet to see where, where they would just interject little accounts into certain places without kind of a reason. There's always seems to be a context of what's going on, and we in our living and our dispensation often can't see that. We don't know that. And looking back, we can surmise sometimes, but it's kind of hard to know the exact thing what's going on. But here, I, I call this one of the strangest miracles of all time because it just, it just, there has to be something in this. There has to be something with this. And so I'm going to give you a little bit of a, we'll come back to this in a little bit, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to move on and, and come back and give some clarity to this of what it could possibly be happening. Up to this time, um, up to this moment, Everything in the book of Mark, remember Mark gets his account from Peter. So up to this point, Mark has been trying to his most to explain to them who Jesus is, that he is the Messiah. In fact, in chapter 1, I believe, there are four different cases that Jesus revealed himself. Um, one was when John the Baptist said, this is the Messiah. And then when, when his, at his baptism, the heavens opened up, God the Father proclaimed, so this is my son, whom I'm well pleased. 
I forget what the other, I didn't write them down. I know there's more. I, oh, one was the demons. Uh, there was a demon in the synagogue, and he cast out the demons, and the demons recognized him as Jesus, the Messiah. See, they knew who he was, didn't they? The Pharisees didn't. The Jews didn't. The disciples didn't really. But the demons knew. They knew who he was. They recognized him. They knew exactly he was the Holy One of God. Over and over, Mark is trying to, to come up with, uh, trying to reveal to them. In the third, book of, uh, the third chapter of Mark, um, the, G- the Jewish leaders, the crowd was fascinated by the miracles that Jesus was doing, but the Jewish leaders were still very frustrated with him. And they kept an eye on him because they were losing their, their following. They were losing their power. But the disciples of all people, they should have known who this man was. They should have known this Messiah, right? The Jews should have known. They read the prophecies. They knew the Old Testament. Chapter 4, I believe it was chapter 4, Jesus gets into the sea, or calms the sea and gets into the boat with his disciples. And, and, and they looked after all that calm, and they said, Who art thou? Who are you, Lord? He, in chapter 6, he feeds the 5,000 people. He walks on the water. And then here in chapter 8, before I started reading, remember we're talking about Jesus feeding the 4,000 people with bread. And then as they get uh, from that incident, they get into uh, the boat and they started discussing there in, in, in the book of uh, here, I just, uh, before I started reading, but the passage where it's um, in verse 14. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, neither had they any in the ship with them more than one loaf. Now here we have 12 disciples and Jesus one loaf of bread, you think that's a problem for Jesus? I mean, he just came through feeding 4,000 with seven loaves. And here they said, well, what are we going to do? The disciples were, you know, what are we going to do? Um, they had no bread, and Jesus said, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, and that's in a message in itself. And then in verse 17, I, I just, I don't know the tone that Jesus used. I have no idea what tone it was, but he asked them about eight questions. Basically, why do you discuss that we have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Don't you, do you have a hardened heart? Do you have eyes but don't see, ears but you can't hear? Don't you remember how many basketfuls of broken pieces you picked up when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000 and when I broke the seven loaves for the 4,000? You remember how many large basketfuls of pieces were left over? And then in verse 21, he says, don't you understand? Quite frankly, no. They don't. They don't. They don't know. They don't understand. They don't understand who Jesus is. Do you? Do you understand who Jesus is? You four that were baptized last evening, God bless you. And uh, But do you understand who your Savior is? was converted about 45 years ago. I'm learning something new about my Messiah, my Jesus, every day. I learn something new. I don't understand him. But Lord, please open my eyes. Let me see clearly. I'm tired of seeing trees walking as men. And Jesus does that for us. He slowly reveals things. And that's the beauty of this word. You cannot, I cannot emphasize enough 
Young people, especially, but older people, but typically younger people, I know what it's like to be young, even though I don't look so young anymore. I know what it's like to struggle with having a devotional life, taking time for prayer, taking time for meditation. I know what it's like to be busy. But I'm telling you, if you want to know the will of the Father, if you want to know what it's like to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, you will immerse yourself in the Word. And you will re-immerse yourself in the Word. And you will do it again. And you will do it again. And the interesting thing about it, you can read whatever books. I used to read a lot of novels when I was younger, a lot of books. And I don't have a um, photographic memory or anything, but I have never read a book twice because it's boring. Because I already know the ending. I'm tired of it. I don't want to see it again. I don't want to read it again. But you know what this book here, the Bible is? I read it. And I come across an account that something, all of a sudden, the Spirit of God reveals something that shows you something that you've read for a thousand times. And you're like, I didn't know that was there. How is that possible? That is what the Lord Jesus does, the Messiah does. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He reveals things to us in our lives. It's a miracle. It's amazing. We cannot spend too much time in the Bible. Who is this Jesus? Who art thou? But before we get to that, let's look at verse 27, Mark chapter 8, 27 through 30. We come to this, what I call the climax of this whole chapter. They were going on their way to, to uh, Philippi, Caesarea, Caesarea Philippi. And the term there, by the way, in the King James, I believe a lot of terms, translation is on the way. On the way. On the way to where? If I'm not mistaken, this is the first time the book that Mark uses this phrase, on the way. But from here on out, he uses multiple times. On the way. On the way to where? On the way to what? What was he trying to say? I believe it's used nine different times until, the, until chapter 12 from here on. So notice that as they're talking, Jesus says to them, who do people say that I am? And they answered. But Jesus wasn't really interested so much in what people say. He makes it personal. And he's making it personal to you. But whom say ye that I am? Jesus. Whom do you say that he is? And Peter, you have to love Peter. His spontaneousness, his enthusiasm, his energy, he just pops up. Thou art the Christ. You're the Messiah. Did it just reveal to him now? In fact, if you go back to the Matthew account, I believe it does say that Jesus said, you know what? Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. <laughs> Excuse me. But it was God. It was the Holy Spirit revealed this to you. So I believe it just hit Peter. And you know Peter... He couldn't keep anything that had in his, any thoughts he had in his mind. He, he spilled it right out, whatever he was thinking. And I think it just hit him. Thou art the Christ. Hey, you're the one the prophet spoke about. Hey, you're him. What a revelation. And I think he spoke for the disciples. Thou art the Christ. And of course, he, Jesus told them right then, don't tell anybody. And I think part of the reason that might have been might be answered in the next verses. Because if we go on, 
he starts talking about how he is going to teach, how he's going to um, suffer. He says, and began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected, and he is going to be killed, and after three days rise again. Up to this point, Jesus had not revealed to them what his mission was. But from here on out, that's all he does. Up to this point, he was trying to reveal to them that he was the Messiah, that he is the Jesus that they've been looking for. And when they finally revealed and was discovered that Peter recognized that this is the Messiah, now Jesus is going to reveal more. Isn't that how it works? As he reveals certain things to us, and as we're obedient to, to what he reveals to us, the Lord reveals more to us. The Lord, the, the Bible, the Word, the, uh, God doesn't reveal, well, I'll say he doesn't, he can, but typically doesn't reveal great miraculous things to us in a, in a, in a flash. It's typically, at least it doesn't to me, it's typically as I'm obedient to those things that I already know, the truth that has already been revealed to me, as I obey those things, as I honor him in those things, God reveals more things to me. And I believe that's how he works. As we acknowledge him as the Messiah, the Lord, our Savior, then he reveals what it means to be a disciple. And this is where Peter was. All of a sudden, Jesus realized, or Peter realized, you are him. And immediately, Jesus turns the tables and says, yes, don't tell anybody, but this is what's going to happen to the Messiah. This is what's going to happen to me. And look what Peter did in verse 32. He took him aside. At least he did it privately, it says. I think the book of Matthew says they took him and began to rebuke him. Peter rebuking the Messiah. You just acknowledge who this is, and now you're rebuking him? And then Jesus turned right around, and he was very firm, a very harsh statement in verse 33. Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. How many people have acknowledged that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Savior, but they think in the way of men? They have not allowed God. We have not allowed God to change our thought patterns. We haven't allowed God to permeate, permeate all through us and take over our lives. Yes, you are the Messiah. Yes, you are the Savior. Yes, you are my Savior. But I, I still want to think my man thoughts, my mortal thoughts. And yes, we are mortal men. I understand. But we, do we have to suffer? You don't have to suffer. You don't have to deny yourself. Come on. Preacher, seriously, we live in America. That's man's thought. Jesus said, rebuke that thought as Satan. It comes directly from the pits of hell that thinks that you can be a Christian and live a frivolous life. To be a Christian and not deny yourself is from Satan. Now, I recognize the fact that you, you four that were baptized, I was thinking, sitting here thinking of, all, of you being baptized and, and in my generation as well and the generation previous to me, um, 
We don't know what it's like to make a commitment for Christ and to be baptized and have the threat of authorities coming in and destroying our church building and taking you and handcuffing you and your pastors and your parents and you because you were just baptized, Dallas, and have the threat of prison time and torture. That's foreign, right? To us. It's not foreign in the world and other countries. But our forefathers experienced that. And there are many people experiencing that today. So do you think we're just so privileged that we live in America where, you know what, yeah, it cost our forefathers, it cost people in North Korea and China, etc. But it's not costing me anything, is it? I mean, seriously. Does it cost? If it doesn't, Jesus says we're still thinking men's thoughts, not the thoughts of God. Now, I agree with you. I have already asked the question, God, what does it mean to suffer? What does it mean? And again, that's another message in itself. So let's get back to the story of this blind man. Let's try to answer a few questions about this. So here the disciples acknowledged that, yes, he was the Messiah. But they didn't understand what kind of Messiah he was. Not a, they thought he was a Messiah that was going to come in and rule and take over the Roman kingdom, overthrow the Roman kingdom, and be their king. That kind of Messiah. They didn't realize, and that's why when Jesus said, no, he's going to be a suffering Messiah. He's going to be a Messiah that's going to be killed. He's going to be rejected. And Peter was like, no, no, can't have that. Doesn't sound like the Messiah that I know. But they finally did see that he was the Messiah. <sighs> Who is Jesus? So Mark spent, spent eight chapters pretty much trying to figure out or trying to explain, answer the question, who is this Jesus? And when they finally acknowledged that he was the Messiah, and now he spends the rest of the book of Mark, Mark trying to answer the next question. What kind of Messiah is he? And then, right in the middle of that, we have this account about a blind man being partially restored to sight the first time, and then the next time Jesus touched him, he saw clearly. Peter, after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, when Peter came and, and met with him after his resurrection, he said, feed my sheep, feed my lamb, Jesus, or Peter saw clearly. He saw clearly. From that point on, Jesus, or Peter, was a fisher of men, and he was passionate about it. It changed him. Up to that point, I believe G Peter saw Jesus as the Messiah. He, he, we, we read that right here. He saw Jesus as the Messiah. But I think his eyes were still a little blurry of who the Messiah was. What kind of Messiah was this? And when Jesus said, this is what's going to happen, I'm going to suffer, this is what's going to happen, Peter was like, no, no, because he still had blurry vision. He was still seeing from the human point of view. But after Jesus, after Peter was converted, after the more than just acknowledging who he was, then Peter's life changed, and he saw clearly. My question to you, do you see clearly what kind of Messiah we serve? We live in a culture in America and sadly, our churches are filled with people just like this. And sadly, the pulpit's full of pastors 
that preach an easy gospel. Now, believe me, I'm not here preaching a works gospel. Not at all. We are saved by grace and by grace alone, by faith. That is it. But when you see clearly, when you see the Messiah for who he is, what kind of Messiah he is, your life will change. There's no chance. There's no choice. You change. You become a different person. We start seeing a pattern here. Three times, once in chapter 8, once in chapter 9, and once in chapter 10, Jesus predicted his suffering, and he rebuked his disciples who didn't understand. He tells them, but then he goes on, the last part of this chapter, he says, not only is it going to happen to me, but for any of you, my disciples, any of you that are going to follow me and you want to be my disciple, then you are going to suffer as well. You are going to deny yourself. You will need to deny yourself. You will need to take up your cross and follow me. Oh, we don't like that. I like a Savior. I like the Messiah. I like the idea that I'm following him. I like the idea that he's my Savior. But I don't like the idea that he's my Lord. What does that mean? My friends, if he's your Lord, it changes everything. It changes the way you think. It changes your perspective. It changes your relationships. It changes everything about us. Because all of a sudden, it's not about me and who I am. It's all about him and who he is. It no longer matters that I look funny. It no matter matters that I'm a strange oddball in this world. It no, ma- it no longer matters that I speak a strange gospel. It no longer matters what the world thinks of me. Peer pressure doesn't matter anymore to me. Whoa, that's a hard one, right? Because all that matters, what does Jesus think? And what is he asking? Listen, the last couple of verses. Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus gave his mission in chapter 10, Mark. He says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. I believe Jesus is trying to make a point here. The call to discipleship, the call is to deny the flesh. And this is not the same as denying uh, yourself of whatever, a diet, caffeine, candy bar, uh, doesn't, it, it, that is totally irrelevant. This is no way related to that. The denial, the self-denial that Jesus is calling us to is a life of crucifying our fleshly desires, crucify, crucifying our flesh. And this happens, according to Paul, on a daily basis. If you want to be my disciple, you must deny yourself, take up my cross, and follow me. You must not only embrace and trust in the faith, and trust, have faith in, 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 in the saving grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, but you also must trust and believe and follow in his death, in his suffering. We die daily. The disciples saw, but they saw very fuzzy. But somewhere, I believe, 
the life that we live in America of a life of not having persecution has not been very favorable to us. And you're saying, what? Are you asking for persecution? No, I'm not. And I'm not praying for it either, believe me. I'm not. But I am praying a revival in my own heart and a revival in the hearts of our churches. A zealous desire to follow him. A dedication of people that are selling out for Christ. Of people, of young people, the church. As a pastor, I'm looking into the future, and I know the time is coming when I will no longer be the pastor. And I know there's many young people that are capable and gifted more than I am to lead the church. But there is in the back of my mind, where will the church be in 50 years? Where will Melita be in 50 years? And it sometimes is a turmoil in my mind. Where will you be in 50 years? Where will you be in 25? One thing that persecution, in countries that there's persecution and there's martyrdom, does it weeds out the chaff. You're no longer lukewarm. And isn't that what Jesus asked about the churches? I'd rather you not be lukewarm, be hot or cold. And that's what it does. So again, I'm not praying for persecution for America, not at all. But my friends, wake up. Let's wake up. Who is the Messiah we're following? Who is this Jesus that, you're, that has saved you from eternal death? Who is this Savior this Messiah that you have professed to follow. What kind of Savior are you following? Could it be that we're worshiping a Christ, a Jesus, that we, we're try, we made up? A Messiah that asks us to believe and trust in him, but doesn't require us to follow him in death. Is he the Lord of our lives? Is he the Lord of your life? If we don't see Jesus clearly, do we see Jesus at all? Is there anything like a lukewarm Christian? Leonard last evening said, you're 100% saved, and he's exactly right. There's no waffling in between, is there? But what does that mean? Now what? Now what? Can we go on living like we were? Does things change? Where does sanctification come in? Many, many things that I don't understand. But the Bible is clear that if you want to follow him and be his disciple, we will deny ourselves, we'll take up our cross, and we'll follow him. What does that mean to you? Do you see him clearly? I trust you do. May God bless.